Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's great to be with you. We're officially in the dog days of summer. and We have a little break from politics in D.C. this week. Healthcare is sidelined, ironically, by a healthcare issue, John McCain's surgery. That plus defections on votes. So I thought it would be a great week for some serious and fun interviews, and we'll have more comment on health care in a minute. Let's start with the serious. Putting aside the Civil War, is America more divided right now than ever before? That's the question we'll tackle with one of America's great historians, Dr. Alan Gelzo. Then we'll have some fun with Phil Steele, America's college football guru. Nobody knows more. College football season is right around the corner, so what better time to talk to the college football expert? But first, let me share some of my own thoughts on the big political stories of the week. Okay, here we are, folks, and uh, looks like the uh, Republican health care alternative, the alternative to Obamacare, is dead, at least uh, temporarily dead, unless it's resurrected at some time. Don't see that happening. Um, lost more votes uh, as we are speaking, uh, getting reports of the president having Republican senators over for dinner, talked to them, and... Uh, couldn't couldn't get enough votes. Lost a couple more senators. Senator Moran from Kansas was one. And uh, who was the other, Chris? Senator Mike Lee. Yeah, Senator Mike Lee from Utah. Uh, that puts it out of reach, plus the McCain uh, absence. Now there's talk about just passing a clean repeal bill. This is an odd thing. Um, that is to repeal Obamacare, but not to, to replace it. And give it a life of a year or two years to give them a year or two years to uh, uh, to come up with a replacement. But if you pass a bill to repeal uh, Obamacare, um, but say you know it's not going to be repealed in in, a, in in effect in the real world for a year or two, you haven't really repealed it. What am I missing here, Chris? Yeah, you. <laughs> no, that's right. That's a sort of like a philosopher's question. Uh, it's not really a repeal um, yeah. because still there. there's nothing still operating. To, to replace it. Uh, you can't operate a healthcare system in a vacuum, right? I mean, you have to have something on the books. Uh, and in effect, this would just be symbolic in a way that it was in 2015 when they did it, right? Right. So if they don't get this, I just want to play this through. If they don't, if they don't get the clean repeal bill, Obamacare stays in effect until they're able to muster the votes to repeal and replace. Um, they have had seven years to do this, and they haven't done it. And I don't know when they will do it. Who gets the most blame? Well, I think initially the Republicans get the most blame, but I think over the long run, if what they have been saying is true, and I believe it largely is true. Um, that Obamacare is collapsing and creating horrible problems, I think that the Democrats will have an awful lot of trouble because of this issue. Yes, people will scream at the Republicans, why weren't you ready? Why can't you put something better in its place? But what people will be living under and suffering under, the yoke which they will be bearing is the yoke of Obamacare. Does that make sense to you? It does, but I think it's still a high-stakes political game of chicken. Uh, to really, you know, bet your future, the majority, the future of the majority, the Republican majority, on who gets more blame for a collapsing healthcare system. Oh, yeah, I know. It's not a good uh, place to be. It's not, not a great place to be. And I, to be honest, I don't think many people thought we would be in this place given Republicans controlling House, Senate, and the presidency. 
Exactly right. Uh, listeners to this podcast know two things, or might recall two things. One, I took a position which was the president's position at one point. Well, maybe we should just leave it alone and let you know Obamacare rule. Um, and that was regarded as heartless because it was so bad. You're just, by not acting, you're hurting people. So come to their rescue. But don't come to the rescue unless you get a raft and uh, don't have a raft. The other thing has to do with the raft, which is people who've been listening to this podcast know, because I've referred to it, and people who used to listen to my radio show know, for years uh, I was pressing, um, not that I'm anybody of consequence in this business, but when we had Chairman Tom Price on, not Secretary Tom Price, when we had any number of uh, congressmen and senators on during the Obama years, We'd say, where's the alternative? Where's the alternative? Remember that, Chris? We kept saying, mm-hmm. where's the alternative? Now, what happened here? Uh, two things, I think. One explanation is, well, they never really believed that uh, Donald Trump would win or the Republican would win. So the urgency about coming up with a plan to replace uh, <clears throat> never uh, uh, was never there because, uh, you know, people didn't expect that, you know, with uh, Trump as the candidate, uh, uh, you know, this gonna, they were going to get this opportunity because he wouldn't win. Well, he did win. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was a lot of years before Trump was nominated that the Republicans should have been cooking up a, an alternative. But the second thing is, this thing is very complicated, um, and it's hard. And um, it's hard to undo what has been done. And here I tip my hat. I've been saying this on Fox TV lately. Uh, Ted Cruz was right about a couple things. Uh, one, he was right about, uh, uh, you know, first of all, I, I give him credit for playing in the game here, trying to come up with some alternatives in the 10th or 11th hour. But first and foremost, he was right. You remember Dr. Seuss, reading from Dr. Seuss to filibuster to keep Obamacare from passing. Because he said, and I remember we had him on the radio when this was a topic we talked about with a lot of listeners. He said, if you if this thing passes... It'll be very hard to undo, even if you have a, a Republican in the White House and um, a, a Senate and a, uh, and, a, and a House of Representatives that's Republican, because people get used to this kind of thing. Um, and look at all the big government stuff, even in the Republican alternative. Uh, it's a start. It would have been a start. Um, yes, it eliminated some things, but Rand Paul's criticism of it, although I wouldn't have voted against it as he as he did, um, has some valid points to it. You care to comment, young man? Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you a, a question. In a in a simpler sense, uh, it seems like it all boils down to how do you reform Medicaid? Because such a large portion of Obamacare is Medicaid, and people seem totally unwilling to go out and say we're cutting Medicaid. Uh, even Republicans. And so I think it almost boils down to that. I don't think they're going to get, you know, there are things that people can agree on about pre-existing conditions and across state lines. But I think we're back to the age-old question of, I don't think once you have an entitlement, how do you yeah. get rid of it? And that entitlement is primarily in, in healthcare now, Medicaid. Well, some people have said you do it a piece at a time. Um, I was in a green room and somebody who knows about this, can't remember who it was, it was very early in the morning, said, um, oh, yeah, it was a, a well-known economist. Again, he was off the record, so I don't want to say his name. But he said, start uh, by cutting off Medicaid from the able-bodied who are not working, uh, who should be working. 
and who should be therefore in many cases subject to or uh, 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 eligible for for uh, for medical insurance, their place of employment, but they're not working because they choose not to work, not because of serious disability. Uh, but but your larger <clears throat> your larger point remains the same. Uh, it's tough to take entitlements away. Now it has been done. We did this in 1996 mm-hmm. with the Welfare Reform Act, a great example, which people thought would be impossible, but it was done. But um, I don't know. Uh, welfare was to many, many Americans still something that other people were getting. Health care is something that everybody is getting. And uh, take out people who are, who are getting these employer-based plans, and there's still changes there. And you're, you're talking about affecting, you know, what have we heard, one-sixth of the economy. Mm-hmm. But a group of Americans across the board. Republicans, Democrats, rich, poor, and uh, the middle class, right? Right. And, I mean, it's interesting. I was reading Byron York this morning, and Uh he is very skeptical that Republicans will do anything on health care at all in the next three years. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, He thinks that something will force them to do it, but he thinks that Republican senators in particular have no interest in passing an Obamacare repeal and replacement. And I think for a lot of Americans out there, that's sort of hard to wrap your mind around, given that they've been campaigning on that. Well, that's right. Um, I'll say two things about that. Um, one, he may well be right, because I don't know what you do, and I don't know how you get a, create a majority around this, given the divisions in the, in the Republicans. Uh, by the way, will the Republicans hold the Senate? I believe they will, but, you know, not by much, uh, very possibly. Second thing is, despite all the campaigning against Obamacare, despite that it was a big part of the presidential campaign and every senatorial campaign run by Republicans, did people really mean it? Um, or was it just, it, it, was, it, it was easier to attack and criticize than to come up with a good alternative, uh, or, or an alternative that would pass with enough votes? And I'll tell you what I think is the third thing, and I think this may be the most important thing. Do you know what I'm going to say? You want to guess? I don't. They're tired of it, and they want to move on to other things. <laughs> they really want to move on to other things. And I'm sort of sympathetic. God knows I don't understand this stuff. Don't think you could get a good alternative. Didn't think so from the beginning. And I want to go on to tax reform and building the wall and tearing up the Iranian deal and doing all sorts of other things. And um, that's just, uh, I think that's just the way a lot of people feel. Let's get this thing behind it. They're tired of it. They're tired of it. And I think the polling sort of shows that out. Healthcare for a long time was ranked as one of the top two or three issues on on voters' minds. Now it's not really. Yeah. Uh, it's economy and immigration. Um, and I would add a fourth thing to your list. Uh, I think the goalposts have shifted. I think the debate over healthcare now isn't between uh, should healthcare? I think both sides have accepted that there is a universal notion that healthcare is a right. And now it's just a matter of what form do we deploy it in. Yeah. And so I think the debate has totally shifted in the last ten years, and that maybe Republicans don't see themselves as that far different in the end game. It's just the means that are different. Then, then the last question is: Is there this other alternative which people hold out? Is it possible? that Republicans and Democrats could work together. 
given that now a lot of the basic assumptions are shared by a lot of senators, that they could get together and work to figure these things out? Very unlikely, it seems to me. Uh, unlikely, I think, given the composition of, of the Senate today. Maybe right. maybe in four, eight years, but I think extremely okay. unlikely today. All right, we shall see. We shall see. To be continued. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's dive into this week's interviews. As you probably know by now, each week the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of our republic. I'm proud to say that I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group, and I'm delighted that they're able to bring us these great interviews each week. I've learned a ton about North Korea, China, Russia, and more so far. To learn more and to hear our other ASG interviews, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Our featured guest this week is Dr. Alan Gelzo, Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of the Civil War Era Studies Program at Gettysburg College. Good morning, Alan, Professor Alan Gelzo. Good morning, Bill. How divided are we as a country? And put it in historical perspective. Pretty divided. If you do the numbers, and usually as a historian, I try to stay away from numbers as much as possible. Going back to my traumatic uh, experiences as a grade school student with math. But hmm. these are numbers I think that almost any of us can, can get a handle on. Over the last 20 years, the political center in America has pretty well evaporated. In 1994, according to the Pew Research Center, some 53% of Democrats and 44% of Republicans identified themselves around a cluster of five policies which can be considered centrist. By 2011, the number of Democrats who were willing to sign on to centrist policies had sunk to 35%, and for Republicans it was 28%. By 2015, we're down to only about 25% of each party identifying itself around centrist policies. And what's, a, what's a centrist policy, for example? A centrist policy is, as Pew Research divined it, five basic policies towards uh, foreign affairs, towards uh, civil rights. When you, when you add these up, they're not the sum... Of, of all possibilities, but they do represent some basic con- areas of concern, politically speaking, okay. for Americans. And the overlap in 1994 was so much greater than it is now. The I shift see. has really been dramatic I see. in terms of polarization. So if the question has to begin with polarization, boy, are we in the middle of it, and the numbers show it. So if we had Venn diagrams, the amount of overlap would be shrinking over time. Exactly. This is the same sort of thing which, unfortunately, this is what has people's teeth on edge. The same kind of pattern showed itself in the decades running up to the American Civil War. We don't have the kind of statistic precision that we can do today with research centers and, and opinion polls. But simply reading through the newspapers and the publications of the 1850s, you get the same sense of increasing radical polarization, where the center just no longer obtains. It reminds me of a comment that 
was made by one of the Lawrence family, um, a very wealthy manufacturing family in Massachusetts, after the incident of the rendition of Anthony Burns in 1854. Uh, Anthony Burns was a fugitive slave. He had escaped from his master in Alexandria, Virginia, made his way to Boston, uh, found a job in a clothing store there, but two slave trackers, these were hired guns, so to speak, found him, located him, hailed him before a magistrate, and were about to put him on a boat uh, going back to Alexandria and to slavery. The, the people in Boston were so outraged by this that they turned out by the thousands. One group tried to actually tried to assault the jail to liberate Burns, and the president, Franklin Pierce, uh, one, of, one of the weaker noodles in the history of the American presidency, um, actually sent in a detachment of, of federal troops uh, to provide an escort to bring Burns down to the boat that would take him back to Alexandria. Well, one of the Lawrences um, wrote in a famous comment that we went to bed that night, good old-fashioned whigs, and we woke up the next morning stark, raving, mad abolitionists. Uh-huh. That uh-huh. kind of polarization, that kind of movement away from a center, away from a sense of unity and compromise and shared experience, that kind of thing that we're experiencing today is exactly what was being experienced in the decade running up to the Civil War. No wonder, then, that people are wondering, are we on the verge of something similar? I want to come back to that question, but I want to get to the, the words exactly right, because what I've been telling people, I've been buttonholing them and saying, you got to read this article. Gelzo says we this may be the second most uh, divided this country has ever been right now. Am I getting that right? I think that's true. Again, we don't have metrics from, let's say, 1800 and the great polarization between Federalists and um, Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. We don't have statistics on the 1820s and the polarization between Jacksonian Democrats uh, and the opposition that was loyal to Clay and to Adams. Uh, we, We don't have metrics on that. Nevertheless, if you take the temperature of the times through reading the sources, even those standoffs were not nearly as violent as the temperature that we're looking at today. It really what, is extraordinary. And the closest thing really is the 1850s. What are the issues that divide us most? If we think of those Venn diagrams as bubbles, uh, what two bubbles are the furthest apart? Or, or what, one, what issue uh, would we see those bubbles furthest, farthest apart? Well, there are a number of specific issues that separate Americans. One, of course, is abortion. That's a mm-hmm. litmus test for many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then there are issues about health care. Mm-hmm. That is another litmus test, not so much for a particular policy as for the entire idea of whether health care is a right or a privilege. Yeah, we're wrestling with that right now. Boy, exactly. are we ever. Yeah, yeah. The difficulty that I see here, Bill, and, and this is where I think people jump too quickly to conclusions, we look at our situation, we see radical polarization. We look at the 1850s, we see radical polarization, and people say, oh, no, no, we're headed for the same iceberg. And I have to draw back at that moment, because we really aren't looking at quite the same situation. And here's where I think things are significantly different, and where I want to go around saying, calm down, calm down, it's not 
quite the moment where we start pressing panic buttons. Okay. Um, the, the two basic things that I see that are dissimilar from our situation in uh, today and, and from the 1850s is that, first of all, this is not a sectional divide. What made the Civil mm-hmm. War possible was mm-hmm. not just a disagreement over slavery. And I have to put this little commercial in here. It really was about slavery. I know people want to talk about states' rights. I know people yeah. want to talk about yes. this, that, and the other. But I mean, to boil it all right down, it, was, it all came down to slavery. Yes. Who's kidding who? Yes. Now, your work has influenced me. I, when I wrote my history books, uh, that's right, went back and forth on this, but uh, read you and some others. And yes, absolutely, I agree. Well, the thing with slavery was that slavery represented the interests, not just of a handful of states. It represented the interests of a series of geographically contiguous states. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm using this this multi-syllabic, geographically contiguous. What I mean is they they all shared borders together. So when you looked at a map, they actually could look like, you could look at that and believe that this had possibilities as an independent nation-state. If slavery had been legal in Florida, Minnesota, Maine, Louisiana, you would never have had a civil war. You might have had bad feeling about it, okay. but you okay. wouldn't have had a civil war because those four states weren't in a, really in any kind of serious position to do something independent. But when you get seven Gulf states, when you get four Upper South states, when you put them together, they look like a nation. And not only a nation, they look like an economy. Even though the South is, in 1860, overwhelmingly an agricultural nation, look, so is the North. If you took the Southern Confederacy just by itself, it would have been the fourth largest economic and industrial power in the world in 1861. People are taken aback by that because we think it was all cotton plantations. No, Mm -hmm. it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it had viability Politically speaking, it had viability. Economically speaking, slavery was the common denominator of it all and made that possible. So why did they secede from the Union? Why did they break up the Union and cause the Civil War? Because they could. They had viability. They had that geographic mass. All right. The other thing thing is they had a single issue. They had one great single issue that everybody was united on and that was linked to their geography, and that was slavery. Okay. I'm lagging behind here on two things, uh, slowpoke head here. Tell me why then the following. Yeah, I, I care, one of the things I carry around for reference is a map of the uh, 20, uh, 2016 election. And talk about geographical contiguity. It looks like a massive red geographical continuity with little patches or little edges, little borders of blue on coasts and a few other places. Uh, if you look at the map, counties won by Trump. Uh, is, that's not the same kind of geographical contiguity, though, I guess. Uh, no, it's not. It, the only people who really seem to think... You know the map they, I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was, Bill, I was watching that map the night of the election. I yeah. can't tell you what it what it did to my uh, my Wi-Fi bill afterwards. Um, the, the The problem is that the people in in California, for instance, who are talking about secession, they they say, "Well, you know, we could go it on our own. We're ha- we have industrial uh, mm-hmm. capacity, mm-hmm. we have yes, the economy." 
And I'm thinking, yeah, right, you have an economy, but it is in large measure dependent on the influx of uh, your economic uh, inflow from the other states of the Union. If suddenly you had tariff barriers with California, uh, you would watch the California economy uh, do quite a corkscrew. People underestimate the degree to which the American Federal Union is itself one great, big, gigantic yeah. free trade zone. Okay, okay. Uh, what a, the other question I had? Um, I said, "What are the, what are the issues that what is, is the issue that most divides?" Um, and and by the way, are we talking about liberals and conservatives, or Republicans and Democrats, or something else? The, the great divide. That that is that is very hard to sort out because one is a political question, the other is a cultural question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the political question is about specific policies. If you talk about being a Democrat or about being a Republican, what you're usually talking about is a specific brace of policies. When you're talking liberal or conservative, what you're really talking about is political culture. All right, let's talk now, about culture. Let's well, talk about culture for a second, and then you can come back to it, because I, I, I want to get this out before I forget it. Well, culture, one, one, Bill, is the tail that wags the dog. Right, I agree. One thing that I've heard from a lot of conservatives is... Bill, you got to realize, uh, you know, we appreciate your work and your books and your stuff on the cultural indicators and the Book of Virtues, blah, 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 blah. But you got to realize the thing that most divides liberals and conservatives culturally is religion. That is a significant division. If you look at how the politics of those counties tracks, you can superimpose it over a map of church and synagogue attendance, and it's going to be a surprise surprisingly strong match. That is okay. a major cultural factor. Okay. Let's come back to why we will not have a second civil war over all this. Does, by the way, does your wonderful writings on this, does the history and the memory, if it's still there, uh, of the civil war keep us from having another one? Apart from the geographical contiguity question. Yes and no. Uh, it provides us with some insulation from civil war the moment we reflect on what it cost and what it continues to cost us. I mean, we are continuing as a nation to bleed from, from wounds that have not healed in the civil war. I mean, quite literally, we're actually still paying pensions to some survivors of uh, civil war veterans. There's still one or two offspring of civil war veterans who are receiving pension money. Really? So really? In, oh yeah. In the most, it's it's extraordinary to think, but it was not until I believe 2011 that the last widow of a Civil War veteran died. My gosh. So My gosh. we are literally still cutting some checks uh, from the Civil War, but more than that, we're still dealing with the long-term impact of the war because civil wars, uh, unlike wars between nation states. Civil wars have a way of never ending. T.S. Eliot made a comment, and he was doing this as an expat in England, but he was talking about the English civil wars, and he asked the question out loud, have the English civil wars ever ended? And in a real sense, no, they actually haven't. And we're only 150-some years on from our civil war. Some of the civil war issues are unique as issues, because civil wars are unique as, as wars. The, the long-term consequences that we've had to deal with should scare the willies out of anybody who wants to talk blithely about civil war. On the other hand, we have romanticized 
so many aspects of our civil war that there's a way in which I think that romanticization has sometimes been a narcotic that we think that the Civil War will get us more Gone with the Wind movies. No, what it will get us is more casualties, more property destruction, more destroyed families, more amputations. Uh, That's not a price I want to pay to get a remake of Gone with the Wind. But as I say, the romanticization can be very powerful. And I hear people who will talk very blithely about Civil War as though it's... uh, Well, they'll talk about it almost as blithely as they talked about it in 1860 and 61 when Carl Schurz said that what was going to happen with the Confederacy was, well, the last time they threatened this, they walked out uh, of the the saloon, uh, took a drink and came back in. This time they'll walk out, take two drinks, but they'll come back in. Boy, was that ever a fat-headed comment. Yeah, And I think that some people today have the same fat-headedness. Let me ask you this. Um, Because as I said, I've been talking about your article, by the way, it's June 30 in the Wall Street Journal, and we have a link up to it, Um, Alan's article. Uh, I've I've been talking about it to a lot of people. I talked to someone yesterday who's written some books in history, not a professional historian, but knows a ton of history. He's read a lot of history. A well-known person, I won't repeat his name because it was off the record. But he said, "Uh, maybe the third most divided time in American history, I would put the Gilded Age second, 18, what, 76 to 1900, roughly? Yes, yes, or at least maybe 1901 when Theodore Roosevelt becomes president. Okay. Um, sometimes it's a matter of your professional concentration. Okay. If you're writing a book about the American Civil War, that becomes the most important moment in American history. Sure. If you're writing about the Revolution, that's the most important moment. There's a little professional bias. It twists your perspective. Still, okay. I have to say that even with the polarizations that were there in the Gilded Age, with populism in mm-hmm. its first major man- political manifestation, with um, William Jennings Bryan, uh, uh, talking about the cross of gold to which the American working class was being nailed. You know, even with all that polarization of rhetoric, you still don't come to anything so violent, so bloody, so miserable as the American Civil War was. All right. When well, we then talk, when, when we talk when we talk about polarization, boy, are we ever talking? We're not just talking about polarization. We're talking about uh, we're talking about pitched battles and warfare is is evidence of this what we're seeing in in washington now what i say to people um uh, or is this unique the trump i mean i i I was a trump supporter uh and and, you know but i will admit obviously polarizing figure Uh, how much of it is him how much of it is he picking up what what you're talking about that is he he embodies kind of the divisions but you know the group that mounted itself against him was called that never trumpers and by gosh they mean it uh and a lot of them are you know friends of mine or some of them declare themselves former friends of mine bill how could you do this you know uh but but is 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 what we're seeing around him evidence of what you're talking about i i say just offhandedly people say how bad is it i said oh, i saw the bushes beat up i saw reagan beat up i never saw anybody beat up like dan quayle but i have never seen anything like this whether you're for him or against him i have never seen the absolute vitriol um you know uh, uh coming coming at a president and the the a priori judgment not to be refuted by any possible action he might take 
uh, that he is unfit for office. Is that a manifestation of what you're talking about, or has he done this on his own? No, I think it's a manifestation of, the, of what he threatens. He threatens the political status quo. He's an outsider. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. play by the mm-hmm. rules. The rules are that if you're a Republican and you're elected president, you get beat up black and blue, but you don't complain about it. You yeah. go along because you're very nice. Uh, he hits back. He's a yeah. New Yorker. He's not a politician. Yeah. And he has changed the rules of political discourse uh, in such a dramatic way that part of the hysteria over Trump, I think, is linked to the fact that most of the bearings that people have taken for political activism and political life in Washington just aren't there in the same way anymore. And yet I have to say, don't focus too much on what goes on inside the Beltway. In the 1850s, political violence did happen in Washington. It it was once said that in, in in the halls of Congress, the only people who were not carrying a revolver and a bowie knife um, were the people who were carrying two revolvers. Right. And there were, there were fist right. fights on, on the floor yeah. of the House of Representatives. Now, there's a famous story about Mississippi Representative William Barksdale uh, getting into a, a Dunnybrook uh, on the floor of the House, and someone reached to grab him by the hair. That was the kind of a fight they yeah. would have, by the way, reached, yeah. reached out to grab him by the hair, and the hair came off because Barksdale wore a wig. He was bald. It was a really yeah. funny moment in retrospect, but it was also a measure <laughs> of what was happening inside the Beltway, even though there okay. wasn't really a Beltway at that point. Today, you don't so much get that kind of, of violence, that kind of confrontation in the, the halls of Congress. You, you came close to it with the Scalise shooting, I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. was not a representative shooting another representative. Yeah. Where you do get the political violence, it's been transferred outside. It's been transferred to the campuses. You didn't see that in the 1850s, because by and large, American colleges cut such a modest figure in American life and American culture. Yeah. Today, they are such mammoth institutions. It is, it's the universities. It's Berkeley, it's Middlebury, it's Evergreen State. They have become the theaters of political violence. And as much as I, I will deplore it with every ounce of, uh, of, of my academic being, uh, Bill, it, it's better to have it there than it is to have it in under the Capitol Dome. Sure, sure. They're not outliers. I mean, they are, they're a manifestation of what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Where, um, Alan... Um, where does this go? Does it? We, you say you, we won't have another civil war out of this for a variety of reasons. Does it get better? Does it get worse? The divisions grow deeper, or does it come together? Do we need somebody to bring it together? Um, what, 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 I know you're a historian, but tell me about the future. Right. Here's where I get to stop being a historian and become a prophet, just like everybody Please. else. Please. Um, right. Um, I think there there comes a moment of exhaustion in the the two minutes hate, which has now become the six or seven months hate of of Donald Trump. I, I think there gets an exhaustion point, and people begin to say, "All right, enough, enough, enough." The funny thing is that so much of the the vitriol uh, has actually acted in a way that rebounds 
onto the people who've been dispensing it because they've spent so much time, so much energy worrying about Russia, worrying uh, about comments made on a bus that they've missed entirely all the things that are going on at the next level down, the level of the cabinet, the level of various parts of the federal bureaucracy, federal regulations. They have been so focused on trying to do a second Nixon that so many of them, I think, really have pictures of Woodward and Bernstein in their closets. And yeah, they, they sure. aspire to be the next Woodward and Bernstein. They've been so focused on trying to reenact Watergate that Trump has actually been remarkably successful in pushing through uh, agendas that they just have not been paying attention to. And there's going to be a point in which they wake up and say, wait a minute, the rug's been pulled out from under us. When did that happen? A second thing that I think that is, that is going to happen is probably demographic in nature, and this is a more long-term question, and that is, where is the, the nature of the American electorate moving? Uh, demographically, it's probably going to be moving in a direction much more sympathetic to Trump, or at least to the values that Trump represents. Right now, the left opposition has to rely on what you might call some artificial ways of drumming up its constituency, and that is coast, by coastal media or immigration. If the Trump administration is in any way successful in turning down the spigots on either of those, then the future for a Trump majority gets brighter day by day. So the long term there, I think, um, may have an arc that is tending in Trump's direction, which may, you know, may be feeding exactly the kinds of hysteria that we have seen in various segments of the media. How does that tamping down occur? By talking back to the press, by saying fake news, by making fun of them? Uh, how do they become less powerful? We We see that some of the most uh, vociferous anti-Trump media seem to be doing ver very well in terms of ratings. How does that tamping down, I think I'm quoting you correctly, uh, take place? Leading well, there's, to a, a, there's always a law of diminishing returns, Bill. And unless they are able to uncover uh, the, the equivalent of a, a Watergate smoking gun, uh, 18 minutes mm -hmm. worth of tape somewhere. Okay. Uh, unless that materializes, after a while, people just tune it out. Yeah. And that yeah. law of diminishing returns operates with the media as well as anyone else. After a while, people just say, enough is enough. And you don't have to be... Uh, okay. A, a pro-Trump partisan to come to that conclusion. I see. I see the contrast here. Now, now repeat that quote from the, the guy who said we wake up flaming abolitionists. What's the quote? And who is it? Oh, that one morning, one we went to bed at night. Uh, that night, um, good old-fashioned wigs, and woke up the next morning stark raving mad abolitionists. Right. This isn't going to happen with the with the quote the Russia inquiry likely or or others. So I don't that, at least yeah. at least not at this moment. Unless right. something pops up from Ekaterinburg, uh, someone finds a lost box of papers uh, that were deposited there by Vladimir Putin. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to make this as ridiculous as I can make it. Okay, sound. yeah, sure. Uh, un unless that happens, I, I can't see anything material 
Well, we've had some out of we've had some pretty bad novel plots already, though. You'll agree, right? I mean, well, yeah. Now we, we're getting kind of Dickensian. Uh, yeah, this is so going I'm to be like Blue Boys Hall. Uh, after a while, you something is going to have to give. Well, keep keep at it, please. Uh, write some more, and we will learn from you. And uh, your students are blessed. Alan Gelzo, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era, Director of the Civil War Era Studies Program at Gettysburg College. Thank you, Alan, very, very much. Any last thoughts? We're not on a hard deadline. I just uh, I thought this would be a good place to stop. But if there's something else you need to say, want to say, this audience should hear, please say it now. I'll quote someone very strange in this context, and that is Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck once said, that the Lord God watches out for fools, simpletons, and the United States of America. Yeah. I sure hope that Bismarck was right. Me too. Me too. Thank you, Alan. Great to talk. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. God bless. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, now the man of the hour, Phil Steele, uh, author and creator of Phil Steele's College Football Preview. I have mine. And it's personally autographed. Be jealous, folks. Go to philsteel.com to order your own copy or six copies. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Bill. Uh, look forward to it every year. All right. Tell me just very briefly, I want to get into football, but what you're doing this time of year vis-a-vis football in preparation, and I will tell you what I am doing vis-a-vis football in preparation. I would like to know that. So let you me bet. tell you what I'm doing. Uh, you know, June... <laughs> We spent six full months working on the magazine from the uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving all the way through June 1st. That last page goes off to the press. A lot of it, the, the last four weeks are probably 80 to 100 hours a week during those weeks. But now, for me, it's radio season. So I do a bunch of radio shows during the day, do different podcasts. Just uh, signed a three-year contract with ESPN. So I'm with them full-time, doing a oh, lot of great. work for ESPN Insider, ESPN.com. All my attention's focused on that. And uh, for me right now, you know, working 55, 60 hours a week, it's, it's almost like being on vacation, Bill. <laughs> God love you. God bless you. We all are the beneficiaries of your hard work. Now, you want to know what I do about football oh, I season? I do. I, yes. First of all, I anticipate it. I try to work on my health. You know why? Because I remember Jack Lemon. You remember the great actor Jack Lemon? Yes. When he quit smoking, they said, why? He said, because I love pro football. And then it was 14 games a season. I figured I could add seven years to my life, 98, 98 games. Wow, so there you I'm, go. So I'm, <laughs> I'm working on my L so I can have 20 more seasons of college football guided by Phil Steele. Nice. But that step I... two, go ahead. You were going to say something. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, step two, and this I think you'll really like because you were always wondering about the intersection of your world and mine. Mm-hmm. I'm making some visits up on Capitol Hill to some senators these days on various mm-hmm. education issues and the opioid epidemic and, you know, serious matters. But I sometimes. Times I will admit, pick the order of the senators in terms of the schedule. Let's just put it this way. I visited one senator and uh, wangled my way into a box for the Texas-Oklahoma uh, State game in October. Nice. And then I visited Senator Alexander, and when it was all over, I said, when is that Tennessee-Georgia game? And you, <laughs> so, you see, there's a, there's a method like- in a method people, to your madness. I love people it. Are, people say, what are you doing on the Hill? Oh, you know, just doing the business of the country. 
also lining up some seats. Anyway, I thought you'd appreciate that. I do. I appreciate that greatly, and it's uh, it's good to know how, how involved you still are with everything, and uh, I'm sure am. you're doing a great job on Capitol Hill. I am trying to do my best, make some sense of things. All right, let's get to it. Uh, I'm going to start this way. What is, I'll put you on the spot, what is the best conference uh, in college football in the country? You know, last year, Bill, for the first time in 10 years, it was not the SEC. All my configurations and all the math I do, six or eight different categories breaking down the conferences, the ACC, mostly due to Clemson's strong finish, I think, beating Ohio State and Alabama like they did and the overall Bulls, elevated the ACC to the number one spot last year. But this year... Uh, it's close. All the conferences are up there, but uh, I've got the SEC coming in number one. And how I do it coming into the season, I take a look at the top three teams, the top five teams, the top yep. eight teams. Then you have to look at the overall depth of the conference. And, you know, break down the SEC East, for example, generally regarded as the weaker of the two divisions, but they've got six potential bowl teams there in the East. There's no really weakling in the SEC, and that's okay. why I've got them number one heading into the season. All right, that's interesting. I was uh, you answered my question, uh, sort of. Uh, if Clemson had not beaten Alabama, would it have still been the ACC, or would uh, that game? I mean, they were close in strength, right? So yeah, the it, the two teams were so close, and you know, I didn't do the math to see if it would have done it, but I'm thinking it would have. I think if Alabama would have defeated okay. Clemson, it would have been a big uh, another mark in the win column in a lot of different categories. And the SEC may have held on. So that okay. was a huge game and, and basically decided by one play, huh, Bill? Yep, that's absolutely right. Well, what one play? I may, I may not have the right one. Yeah, touchdown well, in the end zone? Yeah, the touchdown at the end of the game. But there was naturally numerous big plays yeah, yeah, there in were. the game where if you would have changed one play in a lot of different areas, uh, Bama could easily have won. But, of course, it came down to the touchdown in the final seconds. But, you know, two-thirds of the way through that season, Phil, um, I thought Alabama is just so strong. Didn't you get that feeling at some point to just overwhelm people, except for the LSU game, which went went three quarters without anybody scoring? They were just overwhelming people. Yeah, 0-0 into the fourth quarter. And and you're right. I mean, they took on teams like, you know, Tennessee, which came in number nine in the country and beat them by 39. A&M, which came in number six in the country and beat them by 19. And then, you know, Mississippi State had just beaten A&M. They beat them 51-3. to So I think you hit it right on the head. And you, you look yeah. at the SEC championship game, while they got outplayed in the first quarter, they were actually winning the game and went on to win that 54-16 against yeah. a pretty good Florida team. Okay, well, then then the question arises, the first weekend of football season, big weekend, uh, Labor Day weekend, that could be the game of the year, couldn't it? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and it might just very well, and I think it will be, the uh, highest-ranked team for an opening week of the season ever. Number one against number, I believe Florida State will come in number three in the preseason polls. So it'll be one against three, which will be the highest-ever meeting. And, you know, both teams are loaded this year. When you look at Alabama, they've got a starting quarterback for once. They haven't had that for a while. They've got the best set of running backs in the country. My number two-rated offensive line, naturally their defense loaded with talent. Special teams is solid. And when you look at Florida State, you know, last year when I talked to Coach Jimbo Fisher over the summer and we're going through his team, we get to every single position, and and at each position he would say, um, boy, are we going to be good next year. Well, next year is here for Florida State. And the one thing I'm going to watch in this game, Bill, 
is I'm going to watch the offensive line of Florida State because Florida State's offensive line allowed DeAndre Francois to get hit a bunch of times last year. Well, if that offensive line allows him to get hit a bunch of times here, Alabama wins. But if you're watching the line of scrimmage in the first couple of games or in the first couple of series here and that offensive line holds Bama at bay, we're going to have ourselves a heck of a football game if Florida State could very well win. Okay, and that'll that'll really be something. Now, let's stay with the ACC. Who could challenge uh, Florida State in the ACC? Is Clemson up to it again? Yeah, they are. And, you know, when most folks break down a team in the in this, this part of the season, which is the talking season, as they say at SEC Media Days, they look at the quarterback, running back, and receivers. Well, Clemson lost their quarterback. They lost their 1,000-yard rusher, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. lost their top two receivers. So they're in trouble, right? I look at it a different way. I, look, I like to focus in on the defensive front seven, which Clemson's got my number one rated defensive line in the country. Generally, it's always an SEC school, right? Really? But, yeah, it's it's actually Clemson this year with Dexter Lawrence, Christian Wilkins, uh, Farrell. They've got Austin Bryant. They're just absolutely loaded up front. They have my number 12 set of linebackers, number 15 DBs. In fact, the last two years, they've had three and four returning starters on defense. This okay. year, they have seven. So they're actually defense defensively strong. Now, offensively, yes, replacing their outstanding quarterback, Deshaun Watson's big, but I think whoever steps into running back will top Wayne Gallman's stats from last year. Talking to Jeff Scott last season, he likes the depth, like the depth of receivers. I think they'll be fine. Okay. And they've got my, they've actually got the ACC's best offensive line, and they get that game against Florida State at home on November 11th. Okay. So I think if Florida State's not going to win the ACC, I give Clemson that shot. Is there anybody else plausible, a dark horse uh, in the ACC? And I want to yes. move on. Miami of Florida. And okay. uh, Miami has never been to an ACC title game. I think they get there for the first time this year. That's quite a statement. You would have thought they would have been there every year. I think they're a dark horse national title contender if they uh, develop a quarterback. Okay, good enough. Let's move on. Let's go right to the SEC because I'm confused what uh, people have told me you've said and what I've read. Uh, first of all, you are picking Alabama in the West, correct? That is correct. Okay, who's second in the West? Is it LSU? Uh, it's actually Auburn because LSU Auburn. actually has okay. LSU has five SEC road games this year. Remember they took that Florida game last year? They're paying yep. the price this year. I, I've never seen a team play five true SEC road games before. Auburn's got Jared Stidham coming in at quarterback. They get the game against Bama at home. But I like Alabama to not only win the West but win the SEC overall. All right, let's go to the East because I heard uh, – who who are you picking in the East? I've got Florida. Florida's okay. my number one surprise team in the That's country. That's what I heard, that you said they could do it all. Did you say they could win the national championship? Yes, that's what a surprise team is. The okay. uh, uh, A surprise team is a non-top-10 team that I think can win it all. Now, last year my surprise team was Washington. Remember they were coming off a 7-6 yep. yep. season? And Washington made the playoffs, and they had the opportunity. When you look at Florida, Bill, you know, the last two years they've lost their starting quarterback early in the season. And that's really tallied off offensively. They've only averaged 22 and 20 points per game. Well, they've got three good quarterbacks this year, including Malik Zaire, the Notre Dame transfer. I think they have their best offense in years. They've got their outstanding defense. They've got my number three special teams. And then, as we just touched on, they get that LSU game at home. So their three true road games this year, Bill, are at Kentucky, at Missouri, at South Carolina. All winnable, toughest games, Florida State, LSU, Tennessee are all in the swamp. They catch Michigan week one, and Michigan only has five returning starters. I think Florida has the potential uh, to be the number one surprise team in the country. They are my number one surprise team in the country this year. 
Well, I love that expression, the swamp. You know, it really tells where people's heads are. When you say the swamp, do you mean the home game for Florida or do you mean the Washington bureaucracy? You know, <laughs> really, <laughs> there we are mixing, mixing our go. worlds again. I love again. the way you mix that up. That's incredible. <laughs> yes, I'm a, divi- a man with a divided mind. There you uh, go. Phil, uh, is the Florida defense strong again? I mean, they were very strong last year. Yeah, and, you know, last year's defense down the stretch suffered a lot of injuries, so a lot of young players played, like a Jabari Zaninga up front at defensive end, actually started four games as a freshman and had five sacks. Well, now he'll be able to step into the full-time starting line. But a lot of the guys, they lose. They lose some big-time players. Jared Davis at linebacker, Brantley at defensive tackle, uh, at Jalen Tabor at cornerback, Marcus May at safety. But those guys all missed numerous games with injury last year. So I think they'll be very close to last year's standards. I've got Florida, the number 13 defense coming in, but a much-improved offense, probably the best offense they've had in five to ten years. And the biggest challenge to them in the East? Georgia. And Georgia Georgia. this year has got 17 returning starters. Uh, But Georgia's road schedule a lot tougher. They have to play Tennessee on the road, Auburn on the road, and Florida and Jacksonville. They also play Notre Dame on the road, Georgia Tech on the road. A lot of tough road games for Georgia. Tired of betting on Georgia. They just always disappoint (laughs) whenever I bet on them. Uh, Tennessee. Talk to me about Tennessee. You know, Tennessee's going to be good, and they're under the radar. Remember, everybody's picked to win the East last year, including mine. I had Tennessee. Uh, but they suffered a myriad of injuries during that four-game gauntlet mm-hmm. when they played Florida, Georgia, A&M, and had nothing left in the tank for Alabama. They were giving up close to, you know, seven, 800 yards a game down the stretch because their defense was so beat up. They've got seven starters back on offense, seven on defense. They will be an underdog at Florida, at Alabama, and they draw both Alabama and LSU out of the West, which makes it tough. So I've got them picked third in the East, but they're definitely okay. an under-the-radar team this year. Okay. let's. Uh, we got three major conferences to go. I, I can't wait. Uh, let's just go right to the Big 12, if you don't mind. What, what are the chances of my, uh, of my Longhorns doing it? Tom Herman's recruiting very well at Texas, is he not? He is, and I, th- I thought Texas had a lot of talent last year and underachieved. In fact, Texas on the season mm-hmm. last year uh, you know, outgained their opponents uh, by 30 30, 41 yards per game. They outscored their opponents last year, but came up 5-7. and seven. And here's the thing I like about Tom Herman. Uh, at Houston, a group of five school, they faced six ranked teams. He was 6-0 and oh against those ranked I teams. I so I think, he gets, I think he gets the most out of the talent on hand. And really, when you look at the Big 12, with Stoop stepping down, it's wide open. I'm giving five teams a shot at winning the Big 12 this year. Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, TCU, Texas and Kansas State. All five of those teams wow. have a legitimate shot of winning the Big 12. So it should be a lot of fun watching Big 12 this year. I did speak to a friend of mine, Texas high school football coach, uh, who said the thing everybody's talking about it in regard to the Longhorns, sorry to be stuck on them, but you know I'm a big rooter yeah, for them, is, uh, is the recruiting. We're not losing all these guys uh, to, you know, to to uh, to Florida and other places, Florida State and other places. So th- that's a credit to Herman, and he's a great coach. So He is. He, the, the things he did at Houston. And then, you know, like I talked to Coach Herman last year when he was at Houston, and I said, uh, you could run for mayor of Columbus because every time a play breaks down for Ohio State, they say, boy, that wouldn't have happened if we had Tom Herman as the offensive coordinator. Okay. So he <laughs> okay. big following there. We won't we won't get to the conference, but since you mentioned uh, Houston's wins, let's just talk a second about Louisville. Uh, what are their odds? Are they stronger than last year? Uh, Louisville's got Lamar Jackson back, uh, but they're playing in the same division as Clemson and Florida State, so it's going to be tough for Louisville to win the ACC. Yeah. And 
seemed like teams caught on to him at the end of last year. Remember, they only yeah. averaged 19 yeah. points per game the last three, 49 points per game prior to that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That was that was the opener last year was Florida State, and they killed him. Right. Yeah. Destroyed him, and I, right. I think there'd be a little payback there, uh, Bill. Oh, so okay. Uh, okay. you know who I'm going to be leaning with that week. Yeah, I do. I do indeed. <laughs> Let's go west, and then we'll come back to the Midwest. Um, sure. U- USC, the strongest in the pack. Is it Pac-10 or Pac-12? I can never remember. Pac-12, and okay. uh, yes, USC is back to strength. Remember, they opened up last year one and three. Everybody was thinking, who's going to be the next head coach? When I talked to Coach Clay Helton in the spring, he was concerned about the the inexperience on the defensive line, and they played strong running games like Alabama, Stanford, and Utah to open up. They went one and three. They inserted Sam Darnold, the quarterback. The defensive line started to gain experience. They were arguably one of the best teams in the country at the end of the year. I don't think anybody would want to play them in the playoffs. They dominated Washington on the road. They don't have to play Washington this year. They uh, will be favored in all 12 games. Toughest games are at Notre Dame, maybe in at Colorado. But uh, I think USC gets to the playoffs this year, and uh, they are loaded. And Darnold will probably be the number one pick in next year's NFL draft. Yeah, he's very impressive. Who's who's their best competition? Is it Washington, even though you said they don't play them? They don't play they them? They don't play them during the regular season, okay. but I do think they'll play them in the Pac-12 title game. And, yeah, Washington, to me, is the uh, the next best team. And they're up there. I've got Washington number eight, my power poll. Uh, they were my number one surprise team last year. They've got 13 returning starters, including Jake Browning at quarterback, Miles Gaskin at running back, Dante Pettis at receiver. The defensive line looks solid. They lost their top two defensive players, Asim Victor and uh, – uh, Joe Mathis to injury last year midseason, or they would have been even stronger defensively. They do have to play Stanford on the road, and David Shaw does a tremendous job at Stanford. Yeah. That's their biggest threat there. So I think the winner of the Washington-Stanford game plays USC in the Pac-12 title game, and the winner of that moves on to the playoffs, and I'm calling for that to be USC. All right, I'm going to be a homer here again, but I'll tell you what, I'll be watching if uh, if Herman opens strong, uh, we'll find out on September 16th when he travels to USC, right? Oh, absolutely. That's going to yeah. be. Uh, we'll find out if some, they really are. Yeah, if he he keeps his streak of uh, of beating ranked teams intact and knocks off USC, there'll be a national story at that point. Okay, is there a Big 12 championship game, Phil? There is, and uh, what they did this year, Bill is uh, it, naturally it's going to be a rematch of a regular season game, and I think the folks at the Big 12 are thinking it's going to be Oklahoma against Oklahoma State. And you know mm-hmm. how they normally meet the last game of the season? Mm-hmm. They moved that up to November 4th, just so there's not an immediate rematch. So oh, interesting. The folks, the folks at the Big 12 are thinking it's going to be Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State in that Big 12 title game. Okay, I won't comment further. You've already heard my, my position on that. <laughs> or at least the position of my heart, if not my head. That's right. That's let's right. go to the let's go to the Big Ten. Looks to me like Ohio State cruises till the end of the season. Is that right? You know, their their biggest test is going to be Penn State and with Penn State, uh it's a, a Penn State team that is definitely the deepest that James Franklin has put on the field. I've talked to him each of his four years there and they are far deeper than they were. They gained a lot of confidence in the second half of the year. But just like we talked about with that Louisville-Florida State, Penn State's got to go on the road to Ohio State the week after playing Michigan. I think Ohio State gets the revenge, wins that game, and they are my pick to win the East. And, you know, here's the interesting thing with Ohio State. Last year they were the least experienced team in the country, just six returning starters. This year they have 15 returning starters, much more experience. They've got J.T. Barrett back at quarterback. They bring in Kevin Wilson, the Indiana head coach, as the offensive coordinator, which I think will really have that offense humming. And to me their biggest threat 
will be in the Big Ten title game when they play Wisconsin. Paul Christen uh, last year took on six top ten teams during the course of the season and still went 11-3. and This year, they don't. I don't have them scheduled to play a single top ten team. Their toughest game is Michigan. They get that game at home. And that's, by the way, the week before Michigan plays Ohio State. I've got Wisconsin favored in all 12 games. I think that would be a heck of a Big Ten title game if you had wow. an undefeated Wisconsin, undefeated Ohio State battling. Wow, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That's very interesting. All right, let's, uh, by the way, you had started by saying the number one or number three teams when Alabama and Florida State opened Labor Day weekend. Who's the number two? Is that Ohio State? I think it'll be Ohio State when the AP poll comes out. Yeah, AP doesn't get released till the middle of uh, August, but I'm usually pretty good at predicting uh, what the AP has. All right, let's step back. We've just got about three or four minutes left and get uh, the great, uh, unique Phil Steele perspective. You just told me something I didn't know. Tell me something else. You just told us about Wisconsin. Look out for Wisconsin, mainly because of schedule is the, and their, their strength, but mainly because of schedule as well. Yeah, and schedule is a big part, uh, but they are a stronger team. And, you know, mm-hmm. with Wisconsin, Paul Christ has been there before, so he wants to have that big offensive line, the strong running game. His first year back at Wisconsin, they only averaged 150 yards per game rush, 3.8 yards per carry. They improved yeah. a little last year, 4.3, but those aren't Wisconsin numbers. Wisconsin numbers are 5.5, 6.5 yards per carry. I think they get back to that this year with their 15 returning starters. And then, as we touched on, the schedule's one where they'll be favorite in every single game and do i remember correctly they played ohio state very tough didn't they in that game they did in fact that game went to overtime and they ended that's up right and the, they lost the game in overtime uh last year uh the 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 big 10 title game they jumped out to a big lead over number eight penn state and then ended up losing and the michigan game when they took out number four michigan on the road they only lost by seven points, and they upset yeah. number five LSU. They beat a number That's seven right. Nebraska. And then, uh, of course, in the bowl game, beat a, a number 12 Western Michigan. But they played a lot of top ten teams last year. All right, you can tell my, uh, you know, I'm a headline reader. Who else should we be looking at that uh, that we haven't mentioned? Any conference anywhere? Uh I think the group of five team this year is going to be South Florida coming out of the Big East. Okay. I say Big East, American Conference. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, Willie Taggart did not leave the cupboard bare for Charlie Strong. I think Strong steps into a good situation here. Quentin Flowers is back at QB. Uh, they've got the, almost their entire defense back from last year, and they also play my number 110 schedule. So they have no chance of making the playoffs, even if they run the table this year, because their schedule's so soft. But they really will be favored in every single one of their games. So I think South Florida is the team that gets that group of five bid. And then just a little more on Miami, which I had touched about, because they are my number two surprise team in the country behind Florida. I think Miami finally gets that title game. Their defensive front seven is nasty, Bill. In fact, their linebacking core last year was three true freshmen, Michael Pinckney, Shaq Quarterman, Zach McLeod. Those guys are now all experienced softs. They're all what I call VHTs are very highly touted. And the defensive front four looks great. They have an outstanding defensive front seven. And when I talked to Coach Rick last year, he wasn't thrilled with the speed at receiver, but he's had two recruiting classes of speed coming in, so they will have better speed at that receiver position. All right, let's go back to where we started. I got a few visits on Capitol Hill. Whose offices should I go to in light of give us a couple more of the big games this season to watch? We already know Florida State, Alabama, uh, opening uh, opening day. What what are the other big games, September, October, November, 
that we should watch. And I'll, I'll adjust my Washington visits based on there, what you say. There you go. You know, right out of the box, Florida-Michigan, I think, is going to be a big game. Okay. If Michigan was to win that, they come in with just five returning starters, Bill. But uh, they actually rank in my top units in all eight position categories. So they have okay. talent. And if they were to get Florida, some early Michigan. wins, like over Florida, uh, that would be a threat. I think that Clemson-Florida State game is an absolute Where, Where's bust. the Florida-Michigan game, Phil? Uh, it's a neutral site. It's in uh, oh. Dallas, I believe. So I was gonna, uh, I was gonna go to Michigan and campaign for Kid Rock. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> Where are okay. you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, never mind. Go ahead. Okay, I admit gotcha. it. You train. Go ahead. Uh, Bedlam should be a big game. As, as mentioned, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State is okay. the one that the, the Big okay. Twelve is thinking. That's November fourth. And that game is at Oklahoma State. I think the Pac-12 title game would be exciting. The Big Ten title game is going to be great this year. And uh, who's going uh, to be in it? Ohio State, Wisconsin. Ohio State, Wisconsin. I think they both will be undefeated going into that game. So, and then of course the the Iron Bowl should be one of those where if if Alabama is not going to win the West, I think it's Auburn, and uh, Auburn gets that game at home late in the year. Talk to me for a minute about one of my favorite teams, uh, LSU. What do they have? What are they missing? LSU's got the talent. In fact, they're probably going to get their best quarterback play in years. They bring in Matt Canada, the, the offense coordinator from Pitt. I think they'll have their best offense. Darius Geis, one of the top running backs in the country. DJ Shark, one of the top receivers. The offensive line looks solid. And defensively, Arden Key is the guy to watch. He may be the best defensive player in the country. Secondary looks great. The thing I don't like about LSU is the schedule. I've never seen a team with five uh, SEC road games before. They have to play at Florida, at Alabama, at Tennessee, at Mississippi, at Mississippi State, all in the same season. Mm-hmm. And I think that might take its toll on them. But uh, I'm not going to count Ed Orgeron's group out of there. They they definitely have the talent to play with all the big boys. Let me ask you about something, to the, the staying in that same conference. I was listening to the College Football Channel the other day. One of the guys, I can't remember which one it was, was somebody you know, but I'm sure sure, said, uh, uh, is it Kevin Sumlin at Texas A&M? Is that, his, is that his name? Yes. Is in trouble partly because of the early success, that it led to high expectations. I remember the first time noticing him as a coach was when, you know, Johnny Football went to Tuscaloosa and won. Did that just get everybody so crazy that, you know, they built a new stadium, got expectations up, and at the end of the day this hurts Sumlin because, what, he's won seven or eight games every season, but they say he's on the hot seat. Yeah, he he is clearly on the hot seat this year. In fact, his AD came out and said we not only need to win, we need to win big this year. So, yeah, he's one of those coaches. I I did an article for ESPN.com, and he is clearly on the hot seat. And it's not only the way he started, which was 11-2, and but it's the way the last four seasons have gone. In 2013, he got this team all the way up to number seven midseason. Yeah. Everybody says national title contender. 2014, they got as high as number six. They opened up five and zero. Oh, they're number six in the country, national title contender. Uh, 2015, they're number nine, national title contender, five yeah. and zero. Oh. And last year, remember the college football playoff committee's first vote? They were number four in the playoffs. They were that team that was going to make the playoffs. They were six and zero oh at that yeah. point. How have they finished? Unranked, unranked, unranked the last three years. They finished yeah. with five, five, and five losses. So not only a great start and a mediocre rest of the four years, but great starts to the season, raising expectations, and then poor finishes, including a bowl loss to Kansas State last year. 
Well, you're supposed to, you know, as a teacher, educator, philosopher, I always say high expectations are very important. But, boy, there's a double edge to that, isn't there? There really there, is. There sure is. Phil, this is great. Listen, I just want uh, you to tell uh, the listeners here all the places they can see you, hear you, read you. R- r- rattle, rattle them off for us. I appreciate that, Bill. Be on ESPN a lot this year, doing a ESPN Insider, ESPN.com. Uh, you can get the magazine. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Walgreens, Walmart, uh, Books A Million, places like that across the country. They do sell out fast, so make sure you get your hands on a copy. And they won't be autographed like yours are, Bill, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's just the breaks for the general public out there. But you can also Somebody asked if they could borrow mine. I said, no, buy your own. It's <laughs> autographed. Yeah, it can also go to philsteel.com. That's P H I L S T E E L E.com and check out all the great stuff going there. And finally, this is the thing everybody writes me about. They love this. When you were watching that first Saturday, how many TVs will be on in your house? Uh, at my office here, I've got 12 TVs, so I'm watching 12 games. And then usually if there's a 13th or 14th game on ESPN3, I'll have that on a computer on the side. But generally 12 games all day long. When I go home at night, Bill, and, and watch the night games, I only have eight TVs there. And when that precious daughter comes in, you don't even flip it to Nickelodeon or something that she might uh, <laughs> She knows on Saturdays that's the only day <laughs> she cannot influence me on that. So, yeah, Saturday's a tough day with all those games going on. Got it. Phil, thank you very much. See you in football season. Thank you, Phil Steve. Sounds great. Always enjoy our conversations, Bill. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We have to leave it there for today, folks. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been The Bill Bennett Show.